Welcome, everybody. Thanks for coming. Um, my name's Rachel Whitworth. I'm the senior producer of Performing Lines WA. And I just want to welcome you to panel number three of the Kolyong Creative Hub. Uh, I have some lovely people up here on the screen who I will introduce in a little bit. Um, but firstly, I just wanted to uh, acknowledge, I will read out what we've been using throughout these last three weeks. Um, I'd like to acknowledge the First Peoples of this land from whose wisdom and generosity we are constantly learning. Where we are and the history that precedes us informs how we work and how we move forward. So I'd like to pay my respects to the traditional owners of the land on which we are gathered, the Wajak people of the Noongar Nation and their elders past, present and emerging. Um, I think most of you here have been in and out of uh, Kolyang over the last three weeks, but I will just um, tell you briefly about what the Creative Hub has been. It's been a three-week creative explosion. <laughs> um, we have been funded by the Department of Local Government, Sports and Cultural Industries to come together. Um, 62 artists are part of our cohort and together they have been working um, in all the spaces through Subiaco Arts Centre. We have been having small group discussions about topics um, that are really important to the artists. Uh, we've been sharing practice and we've been hosting some panels, which is um, what we're doing today. Um, I just want to say that throughout the Hub, we really have been trying to embody and practice a flexible and generous way of engaging with the Hub. And that means um, we really encourage you to um, listen and be in the session how you need to be. If you feel you need to get up and walk around or need to leave the space for a little bit, um, move, fidget, whatever, um, please feel comfortable to do that. Um, this panel, I'm just going to give it a bit of context actually because the panels have been quite um, big to put together and that's because uh, we've been working with an artist advisory of four artists to help curate and plan for this, uh, for, for the creative hub. And um, the panels really, we have been focusing on big picture thinking but also inspirational, aspirational thinking and trying to hear from some leaders in our field that we perhaps don't have access to um, all the way over here in Perth. Uh, and this panel, the, the final one, is really, uh, it's an extension of a panel we did last year called uh, Decolonising Art Spaces. So everything that we've done in this Kolyang Creative Hub has tried to be sort of an extension, a next level of conversation from what we had last year to keep the conversation moving forward. Um, this one, equity and inclusion in our performing arts spaces. So the title is Investigating New Models and Pathways that are working towards truly reflecting the diversity of contemporary Australia on our stages. Hear from some national leaders about their long-term vision in supporting the development of exciting new artists and creating authentic experiences that connect to new audiences. So it's a pretty big topic. Um, and I guess I thought I would set some context because I am standing up here. Um, and just to let you know that we are recording 
recording this session and we have all the recordings of all the sessions that we've done and people have been accessing those recordings quite a lot. So I am a white woman um, who doesn't identify as being uh, culturally diverse or have a disability but we will be discussing these, these topics throughout this session. Um, and I just wanted to tell you that a little bit about performing lines actually. I haven't talked a lot about why these, why we, this is quite a, a deep passion and strategic vision for, for Performing Lines WA. Um, and I just wanted to say it's actually sort of been a five-year journey, in fact, in that five years ago, Fiona de Garris, the previous senior producer, and I um, were really challenged by this idea that we're working with people that look like us and we actually, we don't know how to change this. We, we need, we need... We need, to, we need a catalyst, we need to do this. Um, and over the last five years, I feel we have been, had a dedicated vision to doing that. Um, and I just thought I'd share with you uh, the cohort of artists that we've worked with so far this year. Um, if you could share screen, Rowan. Um, this is, and this is, this is a group of people that we've worked with this year to date. Um, so I feel like five years ago that wasn't um, that, that that snapshot would not have looked the same as what it looks like now. And I look at that group of artists and I feel pretty excited. <laughs> um, and also the creative hub that we've done um, this year with the artist advisory, we've selected 62 artists and 45 of those identified as mid-career, 13 as emerging, four indigenous five with a disability or neurodiversity, 15 culturally and linguistically di diverse and eight from regional WA. So um, I guess the only reason why I'm sharing that with you, thanks Rowan, is just to say um, things don't change unless you decide that they need to and you work towards that. And, and I suppose this is what that, this conversation is about. Um, I'm going to introduce our panel members. Um, first, I'll look at who I'm looking at on my screen. Zoha Spatz, if you want to just give a little... Your names are not coming up. Zoha. Um, Zoha's the CEO and Executive Director of La Boite Theatre, Australia's oldest continuously running theatre, established in 1925. She's passionate about developing artists and audiences pushing the boundaries of the creative arts by diversifying the narratives, practices and voices on our stages. Jade Lilly, in black, um, is the Head of Sector Development, Advocacy and Development at the Australia Council. I picked this sentence out, Jade. A history of excellent work in collaboration with artists and communities has led to Jade's leadership in the field, continually shaping and articulating what contemporary models of creative and cultural development can be. Um, which is something we've really been drilling down into over the last three weeks in the Hub. And Samira Farah, Farah sorry, is an art producer and radio presenter. She is co-founder of Melbourne-based Black African arts collective Still Nomads. She currently hosts The Score on Triple R and is artistic associate at Arts House, a performance venue based in Melbourne. So thank you so much for joining us, you guys. I am really excited to talk about um, how organisations and institutions are trying to make change. Because we've been talking here um, in our small group discussions with the artists 
about how we can create change in our local sector here, but it's really good to hear about what other people are doing. So my first question, uh, and I'm going to start with you, Zoha. When you first came to your organisation, what did you notice about who was included? Who was making art and who were they making art for? Thanks, Rach. Um, hi, everybody. Uh, as uh, Rachel introduced me, my name is Zoha and I'm dialing in from the land of the Turrbal and the Yagara peoples um, in Brisbane. It's really great to meet you virtually and be part of the conversation. Um, so La Boite is 96 years young uh, and I have been here for two, <laughs> two years. Um, and similarly to what Rachel was talking about, the journey, I think that resonates with me. Um, when I came to La Boite, there were already on the pathway of um, a recognition that there needed to be a redressing of balance and representation. Um, and at that point, there had been maybe two works, main stage works. One was single Asian female and another one prize fighter. Uh, that was stories from culturally and linguistically diverse artists um, that made it to the main stage. But there was obviously a lot more work to do um, to go beyond um, <clears throat> that kind of transactional pipeline of making stories. Um, and I guess what I really noticed was um, as, I, as we were making work, because it takes so long to make work, um, we were kind of developing audiences and creating safe places and um, this experience for people to see their stories on stage. But then we wouldn't back that up with further opportunities for interconnecting. And it was a bit of a, a, a flash, I don't want to say flash in the pan because it was a huge investment for the organisation, but certainly there was no kind of ongoing legacy piece of how to continue. Um, and that, that felt like quite urgent as, as a misstep of, um, we were only kind of working with one wheel. Um, so the opportunity really as the next part of this journey um, is how do we kind of further representation across all areas of the organisation, staff, board, artists, how do we continue to develop our audiences? Um, so there's still a heap of work to do, but certainly I think the commitment from the company has been there for quite a number of years. Um, and now it's just about, in a way, putting your money where your mouth is and just making some really deep commitments and, and pushing forward. Great, we, we'll talk about the strategies that you're using to do that um, in a second. Samira, um, just thinking about Arts House, when you first arrived there, what did you notice? Um, so I arrived at Arts House before I actually started to work there. I was an artist in residence in 2018 as part of Culture Lab for my collective that I co-founded, so Still Nomads, so a group of roughly 15 Black African artists and creatives. We Sorry, I have to give you a context. So we were part of the Festival of Live Art FOLA in March, mm -hmm. May 2018. And then six months later, we were invited to be part of Culture Lab, which is the development program at Arts House. And so my first entryway there, I guess, was a little bit different from most people that I think 
would start a role there. I think I'm one of the few people that was an artist turned arts worker. But one of the things I first noticed is um, I come from Sydney originally. I now live in Melbourne. Was that there was a wide variety of people beyond the one person. I think with a lot of institutions, when I visit or go or check the pages, et cetera, there's one of one. While at Arts House, in terms of the artists, I mean, there would be groups of various community groups, which I thought was very interesting coming from Sydney. Um, the other thing that I really noticed was an openness to discuss things that uh, a lot of people shy away from. I think, you know, especially a couple of years ago when nobody wanted to even say things like white supremacy or, you know, racial justice, things have progressed very differently. But back in those days, when I started as an art producer, people did not want to talk about those words, those phrases, um, et cetera. And then I think what I also noticed about who is making art I'm not saying Art House is perfect, by the way. I know I work there. But I think what was very interested there was that the agency was always given to us as you know, young Black African artists at Arts House, where while we're supported in many ways, we were also left alone, which has always been very critical to the way that I work as an independent art producer and as someone who manages a collective of young Black African people. Before I enter into any space, I look at what kind of agency is given to us, is given to community members, and not just community members that I represent. Like I, I would look like if there is negativity around any community that will make me hesitant in um, joining. So that was my first memory of that year that they were very open to giving us agency, giving us funding, and also really accepting that for a lot of marginalized communities, we don't have the trajectory career that let's say white Australians might have. So being flexible on how you work with communities like mine. Great. Let's hear from Jade next. Um, I know you've Australia Council been doing massive work in this area, so it'd be great to just hear a little bit about when you first came. Hi everyone. Uh, thanks also for the introduction and the invitation today. I'm calling you from Jaja Warren Country in regional Victoria. Um, I was also actually while. Well, Zohar and Samira were talking, I was thinking about when I arrived at Footscray Community Arts Centre, um, more as my sort of frame of reference actually, and just remembering that, you know, 130 different cultural groups and 150 languages represented in Melbourne's West, um, and 30% of the Victorian Aboriginal population also based in Melbourne's West. And that for me was just the, um, that was who contemporary Australia is. And, and then, working through all parts of that organisation from programming to people to policy to marketing the whole lot and just really working towards reflecting and representing that excellent and incredible mix and demographic of who contemporary Australia is in all parts of that organisation it you know and and the way and the only way to do that is to actually face it front on and make decisions that change it every single day. Um, but if I think about Australia Council, where I've been for just over a year, and I started in lockdown in Melbourne, um, in a role that is, you know, most of the organisations based in Sydney. So what were my first sort of thoughts coming into the organisation was my strange reality of being in lockdown in Melbourne in, the middle, in winter. Um, and trying to get my head around an organisation that mostly wasn't there. Um, 
I think in terms of how did, what did I notice or, or who was included, um, the Australia Council has about 110 staff and there is extraordinary diversity across the team, except as always, the further up the structure, the less diverse it becomes. And that for me is something that to jump right to your end question, what does this industry and what do we need to see within the next 10 years, a complete shift, a complete change and that being something that just doesn't happen anymore. Um, how did, who, who, who are we working for and what are we doing? I think uh, from my role, which is sector development and really looking at advocacy and development, that to me is about the gap between the walk and the talk. So the talk being, we absolutely need to have culturally safe and creatively safe spaces always and everywhere and what the reality of that is. That to me is our work the, in that gap and how do we make that different? Um, so one of the things that became quite clear to me early was that we really needed to, as we moved through the COVID experience, ask the industry what they thought. And in order to do that, we crafted a consultation process. And it wasn't like any other consultation process that I've delivered before, obviously a different context in the sense of a government context. But um, what we really did was go out to market for a consultant like we would to deliver a consultation to ask people what kind of industry they wanted to see reflected in 10 years from now. Um, but we also kept aside a particular budget to be able to then co-curate co -curate and curate a range of co-facilitators to lead that process as well. So we wanted to make sure that we were able to get intersectional representation in the facilitation team for the consultation without determining who the lead consultant would be, what skills and experiences they had already in that organisation. And we ended up working with BYP, Jackie Bailey and Sarah Pennell, but um, also to curate a group of people who would also lead that conversation and therefore create spaces where hopefully people felt safe and engaged in the conversation. And rather than going out through all of our lists and doing the things that we would normally do, which we did, we also just gave an invitation to all of these, all of the co-facilitators and said, please just go to your own networks, take this invitation as far and wide as you'd like to, and let's see where we land. And what we ended up having was a series of conversations that were, and we made sure that the staff who were sitting in on those conversations had lived experience as well. So whether it was a deaf disabled conversation or led conversation or um, a conversation in a room of people of colour or culturally and linguistically diverse, however people are identifying or gender diverse or queer, those facilitators and the folks who are holding that space had a shared lived experience of sorts. Um, so it's not about making art <laughs> so much, but about how, and I think you can take that premise to any organisational process and how, uh, and stepping back and saying, well, how do we create a space where people feel comfortable to be and can see 
themselves and feel represented so that we can at least open the conversation to listen and to be open to that truth telling and then the action that comes from it. Um, we have been talking quite a bit in the hub about um, safe spaces and how we are doing that here in WA. Um, so, Har, I'll go back to you. So, what what did you do? Like, you got there and you thought, oh, okay, we need to, you know, we're sitting in like a, a, a cultural, culturally exciting, diverse community. How are we going to shift who we're working with? Um, and interacting with our audiences, invite them in, invite them to feel safe in, in even coming into our theatre. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, I think exactly what Jade was saying, look at it from a, like the broader ecology and actually it's interesting like the values of inter, intercultural practice mm -hmm. um, align with everything you're doing, like this value set of how you step into lead and agency um, and equity and justice of that kind of how do you also onboard an entire organisation to take it a step further? How do you define uh, what does diversity even mean for this organisation and um, uh, bring people on the journey? I think that's really important as well, like um, leadership uh, can't happen in a singular kind of model and certainly it's not how I operate, like um, within that, it's not how you trickle down, you need to make change, you need to bring everybody on board. Um, so I think it was a fewfold. Um, firstly, with respect to the safe spaces and community engagement and council, we kind of started to define and articulate what it meant to create um, process or protocol in making a work or, or decision-making around art making. Um, it felt really important for us. We are quite small. Um, uh, you know, we're not a major theatre company, but how do we bring in cultural advisors, the right people to stand beside artists and be with artists to provide them with cultural counsel and also advice. So when some of that trauma or some of that isolation in white spaces or whatever it might be, they've got someone there to back them and feel safe in themselves, but the process can also continue to be safe. Um, it felt really important around agency to make sure that um, people were able to lead their own stories and in that same way that Jade was talking about facilitation and spaces, making sure that, like, if we're going to tell a First Nations story, it's not for me to tell, it's for me to find a completely First Nations-led process and group and where appropriate, if non-Indigenous or First Nations people are to come in into roles, it's done because it's it's been chosen, it's not been um, placed upon that. Um, is, is that a, so I think is, can I just sorry. in terms of just just thinking about artistic practice um, yeah. ensuring that that's being artist led and being in the right people how else do you as, as a, an organization support the development of a work like that look I think for us so we work off a model at the theater company not everything manages to make it this way but we run a pretty significant artist development program um, and there's two there's two pathways. One is that um, people can come on board as an artist in residence. Mm -hmm. And through that process, um, they might have a show being baked for over 24 months. So, you know, it's not a quick to stage. It, it can range to be part of our artist in residence 
um, a 12, 24 and sometimes 36 month process. So Stephen Oliver was commissioned to write um, his first play called From Darkness. And that project took three years from a conversation that had in a foyer through the process um, of making that work and enabling him to take the time that he needed and build the creative team to have a First Nations led project and story come to the stage. That was a three year commitment from the company. And I think that's really important to recognize sometimes mm. when you're working in these spaces, uh, the wheels fall off, things take time, it shifts and changes, and you've just got to kind of go with that process and not give up on the story or the storyteller or the practice. Mm. Um, the other one uh, is through a really kind of public space of road testing work in front of audiences, and that's through Highway, which is our public-facing program, and work comes to us in various stages in that way. Um, and within all of those processes, when people come to us with projects, we will uh, work with an artist so, for example, um, we have uh, uh, Anissa Nandala, who is doing her one-woman show, um, and uh, creative producer has been working on that, but now we are trying to matchmake her with another artist with a similar background um, that can support her into the next phase of getting it to the stage. And it's sort of also around, like, when do you step away? Like, mm. at what point do you bring the right people in to support an artist in growing that work, but also growing that practice? Because ultimately, um, you know, as any artist in a room might say, you start off with one idea and it shifts and morphs and, and the success of the project and ends up being something else. So um, I'm not sure if I answered your question, but I no, definitely think from... Yeah, I guess just because there's artists in the room, we have been talking about how how the creation of work is supported. Um, so it's interesting to understand how different models are working across Australia. Yeah, look, I think we have a pretty diverse program as well. So I think we're going to become better. I certainly, as a company, when I came, one of the commitments I think has been from my end, we've got to get better at bringing an artist on the journey of the development of a work. So when there are moments where we know that potentially that works not for us, how do we bring in other people to come and see it? I think there's a, a responsibility as a presenter and, a, and, and as a company, as you incubate work, we're a lot more communicative with our artists about where their work is up to mm. um, and what we suggest it needs to keep it moving. Um, I think sometimes artists get left in the dark and don't necessarily understand why it's gone cold. Like, oh, I thought I was driving a project and now, uh, you know. Mm. So that's that's a really important power paradigm. Like a presenter doesn't can't do any work without the artist and the artist needs them to be really communicative to know where they're up to with their project. Yeah. And that doesn't make a difference whether you're a diverse, you know, you're working yeah. from a diverse practice. I might go to you, Samira, next, um, just because I know that one of the reasons why we wanted to speak about Arts House is because they have um, some pretty incredible strategies around um, developing artists with a disability. Um, could you talk a little bit about... Uh, we have talked as a cohort um, about how, how do we communicate effectively with people to, to make sure that they know that they're welcome and included and, and that we want them to be coming into our spaces and apply for grants. Um, and whether, you know, do we have quotas, do we not? I know that Arts House do have um, 
they have decided not to have a quota but a percentage of a budget that they're going to put towards uh, in making sure that they're developing artists with disability. Can you talk a little bit about how the Arts House have... It's been quite thorough and rigorous. Yeah. So, <clears throat> so in 2019-2020, um, Arts House began um, the consultation of the, of the DIAP. I was not directly involved in that can one. You just, I did sorry, do... Samira, can you just say what a DIAP is? We're trying to not... Um, just to say the full thing so people know what they are. Disability. So, could you say that? Oh, did you? Yeah, Disability Inclusion Action Plan. So, that was started in 2019 and it's for two years. So, it's an evolving document. It has a couple of different outcomes, but I'll start first, I guess, with the context of who is part of it. There are members of the Arts House staff, and then there are also the advisory group who are artists and creatives with lived experiences of with disabilities, um, various disabilities as well. And that action plan, I guess, is kind of a commitment by Arts House to um, involve not only artists, but also audiences by looking internally at what Arts House can do, can do better, and continuously do better. And I know you talked about the quota. So the quota right now is 20%. Um, according to reports, 20% of uh, Australians identify as having a disability or lived experience with a disability. So 20% is our current target that we're getting to. And that's across everything. So that's infrastructure, programming, the building, um, marketing and communication. With, with other things as well, um, Zoha mentioned earlier about like, you know, communication and transparency. One of the issues around uh, the way that institutions and artists kind of work together is something that I always note is a lot of artists, creators or producer don't feel that there necessarily is a transparency on the way that institutions both program or use their money or their funding, right? So one of the targets here is having diverse, I hate that word, diverse um, advisory boards. So we have two, we have the DIA and we also have the artist one. And the artist one is, I would say currently right now, 80% non-white and then around 40 to 50% artists with uh, disabilities. And what they do is they look at both programming, they look at curatorial decisions. And in recent times, they also are the group of people that do the selections of culture lab development. And last year we have a new artistic program called Makeshift. I, I put my hand up last year to be part of that panel um, I'm someone who's always interested in one, obviously developing my skills as a black African arts producer, but also because I wanted to see, I feel like I'm pretty lucky where I'm at Arts House that I'm, I, I, I get to be quite blunt and I get to say things like, well, I don't understand it. And if I don't understand it, that means there are a lot of black people and brown people out there that don't understand it. So let me put my hand up for this. Um, I'm going to go a bit on a tangent. So I, you know, I sat on that panel, um, getting to see how that works, how decisions are made, how funding is allocated, and also being in the room and being able to say, okay, well, we've chosen this amount. Where are where are the where are the Africans? You know, where where are let's say Muslim people? Where are people with disabilities, etc.? And obviously there are other members, but. Without these kind of people in the conversation or in institutions, I find that a lot of this talk about diversity and representation is very hollow, right? Mm. The best people to choose people for their communities are people that represent that community and they get they have to be part of the entirety of the conversation. Not just don't just ask them for one concert 
adaptation or one review. Um, so yeah, so at our test we have two. Um, the DIAP has, um, well, they, they're not currently meeting because of the plan, but that is evolving. Another thing that we're doing at Arts House is that when anybody that gets an opportunity, let's say presentation, let's say if you do a show, or even if you get cultural lab, uh, Arts House will pay for artists to have uh, consultation meetings with an organization called Description Victoria, where they kind of run you through your projects and how you could make that potentially more accessible for various audiences on a number of levels. Um, so that, and then that, I guess that what, happens, sorry, Samira, just, if you could just maybe slow down your speaking a little bit. Oh, sorry, yeah. <laughs> just. Um, I'm a fast talker. Yeah, you're a, um, I'm a, I'm a very fast talker. <laughs> uh, it's just, a, it's a Zoom thing. Um, uh, so when artists are creating work within your residencies, they're getting to have this consultation about how to embed accessibility within the project itself in the creative development of that. Yes, so I guess for those who don't know too much about what Arts House um, does, so we kind of have three streams. One stream is research, so makeshift publics falls under that. Uh, that's a project that started during the pandemic because we couldn't do cultural lab, for example. And there we have 10 artists that are investigating uh, communities, uh, the city and art. So that's, that's research. We have Culture Lab, which is development, which is a 10K grant for um, artists to spend how they like, but they get to also have access to the building. And then we have obviously presentations. So that is shows. And across all three, um, artists that are selected get access to access consultations that we work with various consultants where they can ask questions. They may never have considered access as part of their work, or they may be a bit further along. And it could be things like, how could you make this accessible for audiences? So should you have audio descriptions? Should we have you know, interpreters? Can there be a relaxed performance, a relaxed viewing? That person will kind of talk them through on how that um, works. And that's a commitment from Arts House across all three streams that is kind of mandatory. Um, something I'm quite interested in as well is how do we have that conversation around getting artists, I feel like people of color do this better anyways, how do we get artists to think about before their show is presented, how do you actually make this engaging, particularly if, you, if you're claiming that this is for diverse audiences, have you consulted with people beforehand? I know that we do that very well at Arts House on Access. We have another creative venue at City of Melbourne called Signal, which is for young people, 13 to 25, and they do uh, cultural diversity very well. Uh, I used to work there for about a year. Their main goal has been increasing people of color audiences and artists. But I think where I'm gonna end this on is, th those two things are not separate, right? Uh, access in terms of disabilities and being non-white. A lot of people kind of think, that you can either be black or you can be either Muslim or you have a disability. You can also have all three or you can have family members, et cetera. Yeah. So like you were saying, Jade, around intersectionality, you know, those kind of like multiple lived experiences and how, how do we not make people tokens? Yes, we have had a tokenistic discussion um, and I'm gonna talk about ticking boxes in a mi minute, but just, um, for you guys in the audience, interesting, I guess, to hear 
about how the, how other presenters are working over east and for a context for you over easters we actually just don't have any presenting bodies here that invest in work like that so getting ten thousand dollars from a presenter plus space to do a residency is just not a thing here and it's just the way that we are structured as an industry which is something i think that together we've been really um thinking about how we're going to address to be able to make more work. So it's, this is why it's really great to, to hear how you work. Um, and on that vein, Jade, how um, how is the Australia Council, I guess, addressing some of these barriers? How can, um, how are you shifting your funding models to allow people to potentially work in di different ways or take more time to make more work because that's, that's what's needed in this time? Okay, there's a few things. Um, the sector consultation that I mentioned earlier, reimagined the report came out a couple of weeks ago, a little later than we would have liked, but it's finally landed. Um, that particular piece of work is one that we've given back, I guess, to the industry in terms of a summary of people's thoughts and reflections. And now our job at council is to become a stakeholder in that report. And we're about to kick off an internal consultation process that allows us to look at all parts of the organisation through the lens of the themes that have been identified in the sector consultation, which are public value, centering equity and survival and resilience, and really unpack what those things mean in relation to our investment frameworks, in relation to our recruitment processes, in relation to our finance processes, in relation to all the ways that we work and operate. Um, as an agency. So that's a piece that we're about to kick off with. Um, what we've been doing through, I guess a good example is the sector recovery initiatives that we've just announced as well, which was 2.4 million um, contributing to really industry-led solutions to what the future of this industry should be. Um, we asked people what problem they were trying to solve or wanting to solve and how they wanted to solve it. And through that process, we've identified 40 um, recipients, notwithstanding that there were an extraordinary amount of applications, of strong applications, and we would have loved to have fund even more. Um, one of the things about that is we took a slightly different approach to that process. And acknowledging that some of the feedback that came through the sector consultation process was around our, at all funding bodies, application processes, and those moments where you have to apply for grants feeling quite inaccessible and difficult um, for a whole range of reasons. And so one of the ways that we tried to shift that a little through the sector recovery initiatives um, was to drop it into a two-stage process. And the first stage being an expression of interest and the second stage being an interview. Um, and through that process, we were then able to identify which proposals we were going to, um, we were going to um, 
work with um, and that that particular phase had industry advice in it but the next stage is probably even more interesting in the sense that we will now bring together those cohorts of folks who are testing new ideas and developing new models to come together each quarter and share that knowledge with each other and then develop a series of platforms over the coming year where people can in fact share their learnings with the industry. So the acquittal process is not really like a report. I will be devastated if we end up with 40 reports. Um, I'm hoping we end up with a bank of extraordinary knowledge and information, whether that's through online tutorials, resource kits, articles, codes of conduct, a whole suite of things that I hope become the body of work from that. Um, yes, we are a government agency, do need to financially acquit, so there is a financial acquittal, but the other parts are really up to people to decide what works for them and what works for the, the audience of that information. So I think from a council perspective, very live, very real conversations. There's a whole range of things that are happening, but those are two examples of how we're very practically looking at the work that we do and how that needs to shift over the coming months and years to make sure we are putting public value, centering equity and survival and resilience right at the front and the centre of everything we do. Um. With uh, the sustainability of artists, which is obviously, you know, a really key issue for artists right now in particular, more than ever, um, and one reason why we have done the Kovyang Creative Hub to bring the artists together. Um, Zohar, I know that you recently got RISE funding to um, have an ensemble. And again, this is something that we have talked about in, in the Hub. We were wondering if you could give us a little bit more information about... I guess that does speak to um, sustainability and resilience of artists, um, but also the kind of um, artists that you have in your ensemble and what, what, what your sort of goals are with that and how long it goes yeah. for. Yeah, sure. Um, so obviously for everybody last year was pretty disruptive. It's still going um, and uh, it forced organisations and institutions to question purpose <laughs> and... Um, for us, it was really clear as you're doing the unfortunate slashing and survival of budgets, it was like, oh, what's a theatre company without artists? Like, actually, the whole purpose of what we do is to tell stories. Um, and just watching them be left behind last year was pretty heartbreaking. Um, so for us, we were, uh, we, we basically looked at what was possible within this company, knowing that we're not an ensemble-led theatre company, like for us to just drop 22 people who've never worked together before into a room and go, oh, and make the work. But what we do do is uh, we do tell stories. We do have projects in the pipeline. Um, we have a really dynamic local industry and we employ artists. <clears throat> so we established this idea around how to create uh, a company of artists that reflect how it, how, who, how, who, what it takes to make a theatre show. So you need actors, you need directors, you need writers, you need a dramaturg, you need all of the creatives, lighting, sound, um, set and costume, video. Um, and for us, it felt incredibly important that we created uh, a collective of um, artists that represented the complex nature of telling stories to make to main stage. 
Um, and then obviously they felt like there was an urgency for us and we would never have not done this, but to focus on equity and um, representation within that company. We didn't set ourselves like a target or a tick box, but it was very clear that we wanted to ensure that there was representation across the company. At this point, unfortunately, the only um, collect like the only peoples that are not really represented or are not represented within that collective are deaf or disabled artists. And we're very conscious of that. Um, and there's a commitment within other areas of the company to kind of get us to a place where we are accessible. We've got quite a bit of work to do. Um, and uh, I think we understand where our weaknesses are and where we need to prioritise. So for us, it was about ensuring that there was representation, but also that we did what I said earlier, which was have directors. So we're sort of test road testing this model around um, shared leadership, shared creative leadership. So we've got directors as res directors in residence that are all leading their own projects. Uh, First Nations artists, CALD artists too, actually. It, so it's about for us ensuring that um, they have the agency to take their projects from the pipeline to the main stage um, and they're able to select who sits within it. Not every artist that's going to be engaged until June next year in this company um, will just be from that artist company. We will be employing other. One of the interesting things for us was around um, realising as we were building the suite of creatives mm. working in the technical field was there was a real lack of diverse um, practitioners in Brisbane. In fact, I think Chloe Ogilvie is the one of only two yeah. First Nations lighting designers in yeah. the entire country. Yeah. Um, and Impossible she wasn't available. We, <laughs> She's so busy. Yeah, she wasn't available to join the company. We're hoping to steal her in, in 300 Brisbane. Yeah. But, um, but what, so no, what we did was recognize. You kind of have. You kind of have. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, anyway, so, but what we did, we realised this is not, this isn't good enough. So we've had a history of running an assistant creatives program um, where we've uh, created pathways in. So there's a commitment from Lavoie that over the course of the next 12 months, we've, the company is um, in existence for 18 months, but over the next 12 months of main stage shows, every creative will be mentoring um, someone through as an assistant creative side by side from a diverse background. Amazing. And we will provide the creative support and the council within our organisation um, to ensure that they feel supported through. So a young First Nations director can work with Nadine McDonald-Dowd or an aspiring director, but also for those that are going to get partnered with, um, uh, you know, white Australian, like people who don't come from diverse backgrounds, there'll be support mechanisms in place for them to go through that journey and not feel so isolated in that learning. And we're also recognising that um, as an institution, many people come to us having gone through tertiary institutions um, and studied through really traditional um, platforms. So we're also going out as part of our broader community engagement in how do we find young people so we have a, a beautiful um, artist that uh, works at our bar, Ethan. He's a spoken word poet. He um, is a musician um, and having a yarn team and going, have you ever thought about being a sound composer? Have you ever thought about what it would look like to sit alongside Brady Watkins across the show and train up and see if you're interested in upskilling into that area? 
Um, same with uh, uh, costume design and set designer Chloe Greaves, having a chat with Blacklash who curate our First Nations visual art installations and going, do you have any visual artists that might be keen to upskill and look into costume and set design? Just got to think outside the box. I think we get quite complacent in assuming people know where to find us, that we're not intimidating, <laughs> that, you know, that, that we believe we've made access points and pathways, but I, I think often uh, we're speaking in a vacuum and to the same people. So we also need to kind of reframe how we do our outreach. So things like that. Right. You're doing a lot. Yeah. <laughs> mm. um, I'm going to move on to the, the, the next question, which is about box ticking. And this has um, been something that came up especially in the Kolyang Artist Lab with our emerging artists. Um, but it has been a consistent thing that we've been talking about across the last three weeks, and that um, is about ticking boxes for funding um, and as an industry. Uh, and uh, the question is, our culture of box ticking is important at policy level to drive change in our industry. But how do we move beyond this to acknowledge that artists are multifaceted? What are you doing in your organisation to ensure more diversity but not box people in? Um, I know it's a complex one. Um, but I guess some of the things that we've been talking about is um, maybe I'm a Muslim writer but I don't only want to write about my own Muslim story and feeling like people only want to work with them for their specificity in the box tick zone. Um, rather than feeling like they are an artist and, and, and can choose whatever they want to make a work about. So that's been some, something that we'd like to ask you guys about. <laughs> Samira, do you want to start? Because you and I talked about this briefly. Um, to be very honest, when we say how do we move beyond, I feel like who's we, right? Because let's say myself, I would not include myself in the we. I think a lot of people have moved on from that conversation. They moved on five, 10 years ago. I think if we're, we, I mean, box ticking is still a thing, but a lot of people have 100% moved on from any kind of conversation that is around representational, one-dimensional black and brown people, right? I think, I um, think it's pretty still quite prevalent in funding. Yeah. Uh, in particular over here, for sure. Yeah, and part of that is I, just um, also about data. I mean, it, it's not to say that we shouldn't be doing it. Um, it's just the, the complexity around it. Yeah, but I feel like if, it would, if, if we're talking about funding, funding and programming as different things, funding is a whole different beast. So let's say if I were to um, talk about funding, absolutely 100%, talking specifically only about my own group of people, my community, Black African people are absolutely not represented when it comes to funding applications, um, artists that receive money, artists that are supported. I just want to backtrack a little bit on um, something that Zoha was saying earlier around, um, you know, diversifying artists and mentorship and something. So at Arts House, obviously, we're, we're geared towards mid-career artists predominantly and established, not so much emerging. I don't, I, I can't speak to obviously non-Melbourne, non-Sydney uh, industry culture and trends. I'm very 
adamant and moving beyond this idea that people of color, Black people, First Nations people are always emerging, right? That this assumption that um, everything about us is emerging, that we require mentorship. A lot of the times people like that, we just need other people to get out of the way or to give us money, right? So, which then goes back to box ticketing, et cetera. But yeah, I just, I just wanted to make that comment quickly. Um, but back to box ticking, I feel like I really can't answer this question as a non-white person because I am a box, right? As a non-arts, as a non-arts house person, I, I know for a fact that when I have applied for institutions or for grants, I have to personally admit that I know that they are probably seeing me not only as a box to take, but also as a box for them to get further funding. And I know that a lot of people of color artists and black people in Australia, we know the game. We know what I feel like is very different to let's say a decade ago is like people like myself, we are changing the power dynamics of that game, right? Like being, okay, you want to get me on a project because your box ticketing, but I'm also not coming with demands, right? So my demands are 50% of my team are also black or person of color. You are going to give me this, I will not do this. So a good example is when we first started Still Nomads and we're getting interest from like places like Footscray Community Arts Center, Signal, um, even Writers Festival, we did have a mandate, it wasn't a manifesto, but it was an agreement that was written that said, you know, we are not your token. We will not do most of your marketing. We won't do any of your media. We're not doing any of your box ticketing. The fact that we're there, we know you are ticking a box. You are ticking the black box. That, that is enough that we're going to give you. You are going to give us X, Y, and Z. Right. I feel like I'm really not the person to answer this question properly because I'm on the opposite end. I am very much around how do black and brown people play the box ticking game, right? So I feel like my advice is much more useful, I guess, to people that look like me or, you know, are marginalized. So on a policy level, I'm not a policymaker. I don't do policy. I work in institutions. I work in collectives. I'm very interested in right now, box ticking is the game. How do I play the game? How do I play it for my community? If other people who are white feel like that's something that should be changed, they're the ones that should change it, I think. Yep. And um, what about those Because they're the ones I feel personally. Uh, yep. For example, um, speaking about uh, the programs and stuff that you have for artists with disability, how do you go out to ensure yep. that you are making an invitation that's very clear and that... Um, is accessible and welcoming uh, yep. without, or maybe it, maybe it doesn't matter. I mean, we, we, it's not, it's just a question. Um, how, yeah, yeah. Go, okay, so how do, how about, do you as an organisation do, yeah, you go. Yeah, so I guess, yeah, putting my arts house hat on, not Samira hats. Um, I guess the key there is, you, you don't, we don't advertise, we don't present it as a box ticketing, right? So the ways that we do it at Arts House, for example, is, you know, we do have targets, we have quotas, not just one. Um, we do it across, not just um, the applications forms. Um, and one thing that is really important for me and that Arts House has been doing quite well is looking at the lifespan of working with artists with disabilities, but also let's say other marginalized. So if you, if they come in in one, area, let's say development, moving their expertise and their interests 
to another program and then seeing it through to presentation, right? I feel like that is a way that makes people not think they're a box that they get it. For example, I, I'm not using a lot of clear examples with the access and disabilities. I do not have a disability, so I'm not trying to name people because I, I, that's my personal thing. I don't want to name people as an example, right? But okay, let's say for example, somebody comes in, they applied for Culture Lab. They're coming definitely from a, a community that we ticked. Well then, what else do they want to do? How does that feed into our other programs like Refuge or Bleed or Makeshift? And then how do we support that person to then eventually present? So that that's a long-term uh, movement though. It could take at Arts House, you know, we usually invest in artists I would say two, three, four years, mm. one artist. Great. I still cool. feel like I didn't ask you a question. No, no, but... it's, it's fine. What, what about you, Jade? Um, speaking from a policy perspective, I suppose. I think we have a bigger problem. I, I think data is a colonial concept and unless we completely dismantle it, there, there isn't actually, we're trying to fix a, a problematic broken system. Um, a lot of the conversations we're having at the moment is around data justice and what that means and how people um, are not disadvantaged through the provision or the collection of data and making sure that it is accessible as possible. But we kind of have to go all the way back to the ABS, the Australian Bureau of Statistics, for example, because we are in some ways bound by the statistical decisions that were made decades ago. We know, for example, that the term culturally and linguistically diverse is not only inappropriate, it is no longer relevant. I don't know if it probably never was relevant, to be honest, but it's certainly not relevant now. It, the data collection and the way that we currently think about data lacks any intersectional lens. So you can be black, you can be queer, you can be a parent, you can live regionally and you can, you know, be under 35 all at the same time. So on what planet does data or a box ticking exercise actually represent people? It doesn't. So one of the conversations we are keen to have, in, we're, we're having it from a research perspective, um, the research team are working in this space with other researchers across the country, across industries, trying to figure out how we can actually move away from the current constraints that data has in this country and globally. If you look at the UK movement, BAME over the Black Asian Minority Ethnic um, kind of acronym that's similar to our CALD acronym, there's a movement called BAME over. And that's really about communities calling for the dismantling and change of that term because it is no longer of use. And we need to do that in Australia and we need to do it now so that we can start again, because actually we can't build on a broken system. It is not representative, it is not helpful. And we need to build that with equity and clarity and accountability at the center of it. So I would be asking a question which is, what is the new future? Because that's the piece that we need to be working towards. We cannot accept the one that we have. And it'll, it'll happen over time. It'll happen quickly in some instances and not in others. 
but I would strongly encourage anybody who's working in an organisation to have that conversation internally, which is for us, what is the data we want to capture? How do we capture it? And what is the story we want to tell? Because if we keep box ticking, everybody boxes without presenting the picture that we feel is right for us, we are perpetuating a system that actually doesn't work for people and completely disadvantages people. So, again, possibly not quite <laughs> the answer to the question asked, but I just think we've got a much bigger ethical, social, cultural, political issue that we need to tackle front on and deal with it now. Great. So, how do you have anything to add to that one? Okay. <laughs> Um, let's talk about the future then, um, and then we'll go to questions. The, the next question was, what, what do you want the arts industry to look like in, in 10 years? Do you want to go first, Jade? I mean, all the things. I, I <laughs> want it to... I want, uh, I want this industry, and I think we're loosely an industry. I'd actually like it to be an industry. And I'd like it to be across industries, cultural and creative industries. Um, I'd like us to stop talking about the art and start talking about the issues that we make art about. We are only going to be successful advocates when we are fighting the fights that we make art about. I would also dearly love for there to be less siloed art form based conversations and more collective action. I'd love to see data justice front and centre. I'd like to never hear the term culled again, mm. except referencing it in the past. And I'd like to see First Nations, people of colour, gender diverse, queer leaders and people who represent all those things who are in non-identified positions in this industry. Right. Love to see us get more money, and that's going to come from other industries and partnerships. So I'd like to see partnerships across industries and outside of arts and culture. Samira, um, I agree with everything that Jade said. Um, I definitely want to see the death of cult as a term that is applied in Australia. I definitely want to see more money and that artists and creatives are not all fighting for a small pool of money here in this country. Um, and I think, you know, Jade said everything I was going to say. I also want, I want it to be a situation where I don't see a lot of my friends and creatives and collaborators have to leave Australia to go to like the US and Europe in order for their careers to really take off. I want them to be able to do that here in Australia because they feel supported, that there is money, that is expected, um, that they have a living wage income. Um, and that when we say things like radical work, we mean, you know, we literally mean radical work. We're not talking about identities, that people's identities are not what makes them radical. It's their work. Yeah, that's it. Okay. Um, well, all of those things, and uh, um, I think for me, 
I'd love when we talk about equity, absolutely around the conversation that we've been having, but also equity around the power paradigm of just artists and present producers, presenters, just the like actual genuine valuing of an industry that's so interreliant and interdependent. And that kind of reshift around how we bring everyone together to understand that there's that we're nothing without the other there's, there's something around this power paradigm that's been bugging on me for a while uh, that I just don't think until we solve or um, the I have a problem with gatekeepers and I feel like this industry is being suffocated by gatekeeping and it happens at all levels um, everyone actively is a gatekeeper even if it's unconscious and it's about how do we turn that into a conscious like stepping away uh and also for me 10 years time I'd like to see our fucking governance structure sorry I swore but our governance structures change um the pressures that are placed on arts organizations to take on an inherited colonial structure that um means that we're reporting to disconnected boards um yeah governance for me is a huge issue that I'd love to see um really like lit up um those are my two bugbears that I'd really love to shift great I think this is a good point to um take it to the audience uh does anybody I think there's some really interesting uh future projections there and and definitely things that we've been talking about here as well um so does anybody have a question? We've got a microphone. Uh, did I tell you that we're recording this session? Yes, I did. Um, please do come and see me if you are not comfortable with that. Um, but please also just speak into the microphone so that it can come out in the recording. Questions? Whoa. <laughs> no questions? Oh, here's one question. Did Samira not Hi, Jade and Soha. It's Alex Desabrock here. Hi. Hi. Um, I, Jade, I want to understand more of this stuff about data because I don't really have a good understanding of it. Can you break that down a bit more for me and us maybe? Yeah, it's a new concept to me too and I've just been learning about it. So I'm keen... Um, for us to start sharing that information and hosting some talks on it as well, because it's essentially about how data inherently disadvantages people. So it not being necessarily a safe space to identify because an algorithm or an understanding of the way that um, those identifications happen can naturally disadvantage communities. So if you, um, it's also about the inherent colonial structures and whiteness, particular to who establishes those data parameters. So it's a, I, I would really encourage people to just like Google data justice and start having a look at it. There's also a really amazing, young, excellent academic at the University of New South Wales called Bronwyn Miller and she is a total geek and totally awesome and talks about data justice just with the greatest passion um, and I've been thinking about how we just kind of get her in and have a big open conversation so that the industry can come together about this concept as well because it really is 
one of those things that it governs so much of our lives. Decisions get made based on data, whether that's the ABS, your algorithms in social media, funding applicate, whatever it is, decisions get made based on data. So how do we make sure that the way data is captured is equitable, representative and just so that the decisions that get made based on that data are the same? I hope that makes a little bit of sense. Let's, let's do heaps more exploring about it because I think um, particularly given the online hybrid digital nature of the work and kind of where we're going, we really need to, um, we really need to get up to speed. And I, I think Australia Council can help to make that happen. Yeah, sounds great. Thanks, Jade. I know that um, Culture Council in, in WA, that the Department of Local Government, Sports and Culture have done, we do collect data but it is qualitative data about how that artwork has made you feel or feel connected or whether it's important that these stories are being told here. So I think it's still data. Um, yeah. And the question is who's reading and analysing that data? So if, you, if, a, if, a, if a group of First Nations people have responded to that question and a white lens is taken to those responses, that is not data justice. Mm as an example. So it's really about the lived experience. When we have this conversation in relation to say reviewing, you know, First Nations artists and people of colour absolutely should have their work reviewed by people with lived experience and people who they choose. When is it appropriate for a white reviewing lens to review a First Nations work and decide if that is, um, impactful, successful, high production, whatever it is. So it's a similar analogy in the sense of it's the lens of who's, who kicks it off and who finalises it. Any other questions? I, I just wanted to piggyback off that. Um, and I was thinking about this a lot. Um, for the data justice, I guess, will we even actually be accepted in that data? Because I was thinking about this, like, we might be, diverse people might be a minority in each of our, um, I guess, our communities. But um, if you put us together, we can also be a majority. Um, and at the same time, we're always gonna be doing things no matter what happens, because that's just the way the world goes. But I think to add to that, will we, when you're ready to inc include that space, will we, how will we, and will we be accepted? So my question is, for, for example, as an art organisation, what is included as an art form? And what does that look like when it is accepted for people who are coming into those spaces, I guess? Does that make sense? <laughs> Maybe just a specific you'd like to have a go at answering that. Sorry, what was that? What did you say, Jade? I was just wondering if there was one of us specifically you'd like to have a go at answering it. I think that's just what the silence meant. 
Can you ask that last question again, please? Um, okay. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, I guess... No, actually, I don't... I think I've lost it. It's okay if it can't be answered. I was just something that I was, like, thinking about that... When we change data, like when we change data, for example, or data justice, or just wanted to piggyback off that, um, when we, when as the, <laughs> as a cold space, or if we obviously want to get rid of that, when you're ready to accept the people who want to come into the spaces, I guess, or I guess when the system wants to accept us in that data, what does that look like for the, for example, specifically for the arts industry, maybe, like what is accepted as art? So, for example, myself, I come from a community of people who may not be accepted into the... Like, as in a black space, for example, um, who come from a music industry or... Like, is that something that will be accepted into this art space and how, what does that look like? I guess that's kind of where I'm, I'm getting at. Um, what is accepted into... A performing arts space? Yeah, a performing arts space or the data analysing and will it be something that will be... Will there be room for it? I don't know if I'm... Jade, I think... Oh, sorry, not Jade. Zoha, you, you've been doing a lot of different kind of um, performing arts, community interaction, engagement through different kind of areas of your building space. Do you want to talk a little bit about how you've how you've been engaging different audiences? Yeah, um, I think uh, I, just to, to link it back to the, to the data and the better reporting and um, the justification of funding and the valuing of art um, as an organisation, it's interesting, Australia Council's actually changed the way that uh, we report back as a funded org. Um, and I was able to curate my own uh, areas of choice for me to report against um, for, you know, this next section of time. So it's easy. So I can then craft my own narrative. Mm. Um, and for me, what's really interesting, I'll give an example of what I see as success or valuing um, that I'm not quite sure if the current model of data collection or acquittals would enable me to tell this very uh, narrative-based success story full of what. So we uh, um, we have quite an intimidating, ugly building that's part of a university <laughs> campus. But what's incredible is that out the front we have a forecourt area. And so during COVID, as we were leaning into going, how the hell do you queue 400 people? Oh, my God, they're all going to be, like, they're going to take up the entire forecourt area. Um but also how do we activate this space? How do we use storytelling in a different way? We engage Blacklash Creative, which are a 100% owned First Nations artist agency. And we approach them. They already do a heap of public art and work in a visual art space. And we're like, look, how would you feel about partnering with us um, and curating a suite of free public programs, including um, re-exhibiting First Nations um, work, uh, public free events, uh, entertainment, whatever, but dedicating a huge portion of funding towards a free public program that was led by this First Nations collective. Um, yep, great. And that's what we've been doing out there all year. And through that as well, we obviously have our First Nations main stage program that has a $45 ticket attached. And then through our highway, 
We've also been doing $12.50 shows and experiences ticketed work. And what happened quite recently, which I makes me feel like, and I was telling Rachel about this, we were it's working, is we have each time the exhibition turns over three times a year and we have a free public party that we've been calling a block party that they curate. Um, we put on food and drink and whatever. And it's become a really wonderful community event and all the TOs come and it's really diverse and it's rad. It's really great. So we had a party and um, as part of the visual art exhibition opening. And then the following night we did um, Steph Disdale, who's a First Nations comedian. Uh, she runs Blackout Comedy, which was a First Nations uh, comedy night. So all of the artists on the bill were First Nations, um, $12.50 uh in the theater and free event then the next night I came back in to see the comedy and it was basically it was there was about 120 people in there and only 10 of us were non-indigenous like it was full of people and community that had bought a ticket that were really happy to be here um, and we just also finished our black a bigger and blacker season and I guess what I'm I'm trying to say is like that audience dynamic and pathway and um, what I was talking earlier about how do you create authentic engagement that's not just once every two years we mm. put on a First Nations play where there's purposeful, like, reasons to be there and they feel, you know, communities want to come along and they know that there's something on and it's a, there's a deep commitment to ensuring that we're supporting artists. Three or four of the comedians were like, I have never performed to a room full of blackfellas before. This is amazing. Half of the jokes didn't land in the same way that it would have because they were they, so I guess what I'm saying is in keeping with how do we create spaces how do we uh articulate successes that don't necessarily um you know fit the criteria that we currently have to fit how do we tell a story and that um qualitative data becomes more valuable than the quantitative how many people what are the numbers what's box office success mm -hmm. and for us also redefining as an organisation what success looks like. Yeah, absolutely box office, but also a number of partnerships, the level of community engagement that we do. We've now redefined what success looks like. Um, so we can really lean into the wins and feel like we can see progression um, and we're not in a vacuum. Mm. I don't know if I answered that question, but that's an example. That's what I was thinking, yeah. I think my question was odd anyway, so you've answered it. Thank you so much. <laughs> I <other> spoke. <laughs> <laughs> it does speak to data though because that, that really is like a huge turnaround of what you've just done on multiple layers, but that's quite hard to, to, to put forward in a data collection analysis of, of the, the, the change that you've made there. Any other questions? Hi, I'm Adelina. Um, I'm an artist choreographer uh, based in uh, Woodichap, Margaret River, and I am a lecturer at WAPA, which is the Western Australian Academy of Performing Arts. So my, um, I'm Mexican-Swedish. Um, I've lived in Australia for 13 years. Just background context. Um, my interest sits as an artist, as a curator, as someone that works in an institution. And I'm sitting next to my student here and we're both very passionate about uh, what's happening at our institution at WAPA. 
And so my question to you is, what do you think of, um, or what would you like to see in terms of intergenerational change? Um, so I work with young people and in institution and as an artist. So there is this um, trajectory, if you want, or not a trajectory for someone um, that is not having those pathways uh, carved out for you as a young person. Um, so, in, you know, this comes into outreach and it comes into mentorship and inclusion and um, accessing areas that are not, yeah, like I said, already created, like pathways already created. Um, so in our institution, um, to uh, throw some shit at the work that I do, <laughs> or where I work, um, is that it's very Eurocentric um, in terms of theory and practice and the history that is taught. Um, and I guess in general conduct, you know, it's just um, more white than not. And it's trying, you know, I'm part of all the working groups and my students are also part of those uh, working groups in terms of having those conversations in how we implement, you know, how do we actually uh, do the practice and how do we create this safe space. So we're all trying to do it in a very, you know, bureaucratic sort of hardwired institution. So uh, it's such, so refreshing to sit here, um, hearing you working in the industry in different um, capacities, but. Uh, um, yeah, I'd like to hear your voices in terms of the, the place that we are sitting in, in an institution. What's your ideas? What would you um, like to recommend or throw at us or provocations? Or And I will bring that back to um, the, the working groups. So I'm taking the opportunity here to talk to the sector, you know, which we are supposedly, you know, training our young people to get out there and be in the sector. Um, Samira, do you want to have... Would you like? Would you Sorry, like, that's a long question. Would you like to speak about how how some potential ways to to help shift a huge European centric institution? <laughs> no pressure. Yeah, that's a very easy. <laughs> yeah, very easy question. Um, I'm going to simplify my answer to one aspect. So I think I mentioned earlier. When I started with the city of Melbourne, I started at Signal, which is a creative space for young people. So that is uh, young artists 13 to 26. I worked on two projects. One was around um, developing creative opportunities for young women uh, alongside Victoria Health. That was to address gender violence and discrimination. But the second one that I worked on was called Curators Lab, which is a monthly club for any young person, not just in the city, but anywhere to come in and to talk about art um, and to work on projects together. I did that together with another friend of mine, her Aisha Tupa, who is like me of East African background. The, the, I guess the advantage that I have is one, I am from a particular community. I've been doing this for a while. So when I get asked to, to do a project where that it is around diversifying representation, et cetera, I kind of have a network or a, I guess, a contact book of people, right? So the first thing I did there was, at the beginning it was probably 30% young white, no, 30% people of color, 70% white young people that came. And then it was just 
this is just one simple, like one strategy. You have to invite as many people as you can using as many approaches as you can. And when you fail, you should not assume that the failure is because of that community. If four people show up, that's, that's good. Those four people having a great time become eight. Those eight become 20. Some of those people will want to become arts leaders. Some of them want to become artists. Some of them want to become curators. They will then want to stick with you. You have to diversify. You have to stick at it. And you have to hire people that look like them, right? And I think the advantage of that project was there was you know, two East African um, women, me in my 30s and Asia in her 20s, that were also artists, that were also curators, that was also producers. You can't expect audiences or young people who are from backgrounds to come into an institution if nobody at the institution looks like them and not just the admin or the front of house staff, right? I'm not like across it. Then the other one, I'm going to end my answer because I want Jade and Zohar to also have a response. Give them opportunities that are actually meaningful, right? So when I came into that role, I think they had one particular opportunity every year, which was with um, a public park nearby. But I immediately used my networks and contacts. You know, we ended up doing a really great project with the National Gallery of Victoria, where I linked up the young curators, as we call them, with a school in the city of Melbourne where 100% of the women are of refugee asylum seekers background who felt very isolated in the city. So what we did is instead of me and Asia telling young people what to do, we said to them, how would you collaborate with people from a different background not necessarily have as many artistic opportunities as you? What would you do in the National Gallery of Victoria? And they came up with this really great project where they, they acted as um, uh, internal curators at the NGV and they showed young women an exhibition that was happening at the time from, sorry, I forget the name, that Sydney gallery that has all the Asian art. So they ran them through it. They did a workshop together. They talked to each other. They made meaningful connections. The assumption for a lot of people here would be it's the immigrants, the refugees the most out of it. It's actually the Australian born uh, people of color and white Australian young people that said, oh, this has really changed my approach of how I engage with other people. And I'm speaking, these are 21 year old, 19 year old, 18 year old saying these things, right? They were like, never had considered that I could use art to engage with other people that don't necessarily look like me. So this is a very small example where one, diversify your networks, diversify your contacts, as many approaches to how who you invite in, and two, make things meaningful for the people that you are trying to find meaning for. Jade, do you have anything? Um, I hope that answered it. Well, do you have anything to add to that, Jade, in terms of it's an institution that has actually probably the majority of its actual curriculum is Eurocentric. So that's a pretty massive question. I think it actually comes down to relevance and any institution that is not interested in making itself, in future-proofing itself in relation to relevance can expect to decline rapidly in the next 10 years. 
So, I, you know, there are countless young people that I've spoken to even who, if you ask them which institution they want to go, they want to become an actor. They want to become a, a practitioner. And you say, what's the pathway to that? They're actively rejecting these institutions because they're not culturally safe enough. They are too Eurocentric and they are not relevant. So it's the same mm. message for organisations. If, mm. if there's a lack of interest in ensuring relevance, which relevance is about who are you talking to, what are you saying, staff and people working in that organisation, reflective of the communities that they want to see there, who are the audiences and the artists, it's actually a bit of a survival imperative. And I think that's the thing that surprises me all the time is people think it's a choice. And it's actually, you know, if we look at the private sector, PricewaterhouseCoopers, Deloitte, Ernest & Young, all of that crew, they've been working in more kind of um, progressive self-determined spaces in the last decade than this industry has. Why? Not because it's uh, the right thing to do, but because it's financially sound, because it's a smart business decision. So truly, I think it's about relevance. It is about leadership. It does take a huge amount of commitment and um, investment in change. But you also, I think it's really important to understand what your own sphere of influence is and take it as far as you possibly can. And it's generally bigger than you think. So if it's about going and talking to the dean, if it's about trying to set up a conversation that really speaks to a whole range of emerging artists and producers who are the future clients, if you like, of that institution and asking them what it means to be part of that institution and then working through what those changes mean. Uh, it has to happen at every level, but I truly think it's about relevance. It's like organisations who will not shift their minds to ensuring audiences are reflective of the place they are or intergenerational. If you have an entire, an entire theatre full of old white people there will come a time when there's no one in those seats. I think everyone's getting so oh. It's a succession piece as well, but it's really about vitality and relevance to me. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Is everyone, did you want, were you going to ask a question, Laura? No. I was just going to say, unless someone has a burning question, um, I think everyone's quite tired. <laughs> uh, so I think maybe we should finish. Um, I really enjoyed that conversation. It was hard to know whether you guys were because I was just staring at the screen, which is slightly weird. Um, but I just do want to thank you three so much. I know it's 6 o'clock or 5.30 over there. Uh, Jade, Zoha and Samira. It was a really fantastic conversation and um, thank you so much for giving up your time and your brains. Thank you. Okay, this is weird now because everyone's just watching me say goodbye. So <laughs> I'll do this by email. <laughs> bye. Take care. Bye-bye. <laughs>
I guess the key there is you, you don't we don't advertise, we don't present it as a box ticketing, right? So the ways that we do it on our test, for example, is you know we do have targets, we have quotas, not just one. Um, we do it across not just um, the applications forms. Um, and one thing that is really important for me and that our clients really fight well is looking at the lifespan and of working with artists with disabilities, but also let's say other marginalized. So if you if they come in in one area, let's say development, moving their expertise and their interests to another program, and then seeing it through to presentation, right? I feel like that is a way that make people not think they're a box ticket. For example, I, I'm not using a lot of clear examples with the access and disabilities. I do not have a disability, so I'm not trying to name people because I, I, that's my personal thing. I don't want to name people as an example, right? But okay, let's say, for example, somebody comes in, they apply for Culture Lab, they're coming definitely from a, a community that we ticked. Well, then, what else do they want to do? How does that feed into our other programs like Refuge or Bleed or Makeshift? And then how do we support that person to then eventually present? So that, that's a long-term uh, movement though. It could take, at Arts House, you know, we usually invest in artists, I would say two, three, four years, mm. one artist. Great. I still feel like I didn't answer your question. No, no, it's <laughs> fine. What, what about you, Jade? Speaking from a policy perspective, I suppose. I think we have a bigger problem. I, I think data is a colonial concept, and unless we completely dismantle it, there there isn't actually. We're trying to fix a, a problematic, broken system. Um, a lot of the conversations we're having at the moment is around data justice and what that means and how people. Um, are not disadvantaged through the provision or the collection of data and making sure that it is accessible as possible. But we kind of have to go all the way back to the ABS, the Australian Bureau of Statistics, for example, because we are in some ways bound by the statistical decisions that were made decades ago. We know, for example, that the term culturally and linguistically diverse is not only inappropriate, it is no longer relevant. I don't know, it probably never was relevant, to be honest, but it's certainly not relevant now. It, the data collection and the way that we currently think about data lacks any intersectional lens. So you can be black, you can be queer, you can be a parent, you can live regionally, and you can you know, be under 35 all at the same time. So on what planet does data or a box ticking exercise actually represent people? It doesn't. So one of the conversations we are keen to have, we're, we're having it from a research perspective. Um, the research team are working in this space with other researchers across the country, across industries, trying to figure out how we can actually move away from the current constraints that data has in this country and globally. You look at the UK movement bang over the Black Asian Minority Ethnic um, kind of acronym that's similar to our CAL acronym. There's a movement called bang over 
And that's really about communities calling for the dismantling and change of that term because it is no longer of use. And we need to do that in Australia. And we need to do it now so that we can start again. Because actually we can't build on a broken system. It is not representative, it is not helpful. And we need to build that with equity and clarity and accountability at the centre of it. So I would be asking a question which is, what is the new future? Because that's the piece that we need to be working towards. We cannot accept the one that we have. And it'll, it'll happen over time, it'll happen quickly in some instances and not in others. But I would strongly encourage anybody who's working in an organisation to have that conversation internally, which is for us, what is the data we want to capture? How do we capture it? And what is the story we want to tell? Because if we keep box ticking, everybody boxes without presenting the picture that we feel is right for us, we are perpetuating a system that actually doesn't work for people and completely disadvantages people. So, again, possibly not quite <laughs> the answer to the question asked, but I just think we've got a much bigger ethical, social, cultural, political issue that we need to tackle front on and deal with it now. Great. So, how do you have anything to add to that one? Okay. Um, let's talk about the future then, um, and then we'll go to questions. The, the next question was, what, what do you want the arts industry to look like in, in 10 years? Do you want to go first, Dave? I mean, all the things. I, I <laughs> want it to... I want, I, I want this industry, and I think we're loosely an industry, I'd actually like it to be an industry, and I'd like it to be across industries, cultural and creative industries. Um, I'd like us to stop talking about the art and start talking about the issues that we make art about. We are only going to be successful advocates when we are fighting the fights that we make art about. I would also dearly love for there to be less siloed art form based conversations and more collective action. I'd love to see data justice front and centre. I'd like to never hear the term cold again, except referencing it in the past. And I'd like to see First Nations, people of colour, gender diverse, queer leaders and people who represent all those things who are in non-identified positions in this industry. Right. I'd love to see us get more money and that's going to come from other industries and partnerships. So I'd like to see partnerships across industries and outside of arts and culture. Amira? Um, I agree with everything that Jade said. Um, I definitely want to see the death of cult as a term that is applied in Australia. I definitely want to see more money and that artists and creatives are not all fighting for a small pool of money here in this country. Um, and I think, you know, Jade said everything I was going to say. I also want, I want it to be a situation where 
I don't see a lot of my friends and creators and collaborators have to leave Australia to go to like the US and Europe in order for their careers to really take off. I want them to be able to do that here in Australia because they feel supported, that there is money, that expected, um, that they have a living wage income. Um, and that when we say things like radical work, we mean, you know, we literally mean radical work. We're not talking about identities, that people's identities are not what makes them radical, it's their work. Yeah, that's it. Um, well, all of those things. <laughs> and uh, um, I think for me, I, I'd love when we talk about equity, absolutely around the conversation that we've been having, but also equity around the power paradigm of just artists and present, producers, presenters, just the like actual genuine valuing of an industry that's so interaligned and interdependent. And that kind of reshift around how we bring everyone together to understand that there's that we're nothing without the other. There's something around this power paradigm that's been bugging on me for a while uh, that I just don't think until we solve or um, the, I have a problem with gatekeepers and I feel like this industry is being suffocated by gatekeeping and it happens at all levels. Um, everyone actively is a gatekeeper even if it's unconscious and it's about how do we turn that into a conscious like stepping away. Uh, and also for me in 10 years time, I'd like to see our fucking governance structure, sorry I swore, but our governance structures change. Um, the pressures that are placed on arts organisations to take on an inherited colonial structure that um, means that we're reporting to disconnected boards. Um, yeah, governance for me is a huge issue that I'd love to see um, really like lit up. Um, those are my two bugbears that I'd really love to shoot. Great. I think this is a good point to um, take it to the audience. Uh, does anybody... I think there's some really interesting uh, future projections there and, and definitely things that we've been talking about here as well. Um, so, does anybody have a question? We've got a microphone. Uh, did I tell you that we're recording this session? Yes, I did. Um, please do come and see me if you are not comfortable with that. Uh, but please also just speak into the microphone so that it can come out of the recording. Questions? Whoa! <laughs> no questions? Oh, here's one question. Hi, James. So, hi, it's Alex Jezebrock here. Hi. Hi. Um, I, Jade, I want to understand more of this stuff about data because I don't really have a good understanding of it. Can you break that down a bit more for me and us, maybe? Yeah, it's a new concept to me too, and I've just been learning about it. So I'm keen um, for us to start sharing that information and hosting some talks on it as well, because it's essentially about how data inherently disadvantages people. So it not being necessarily a safe space to identify because an algorithm or an understanding of the way that um, those identifications happen can naturally disadvantage communities. So if you, um, it's also about the inherent 
colonial structures and whiteness particular to who establishes those data parameters. So it's a, I, I would really encourage people to just like Google data justice and start having a look at it. There's also a really amazing, young, excellent academic at the University of New South Wales called Bronwyn Miller, and she is a total geek and totally awesome and talks about data justice just with the greatest passion. Um, and I've been thinking about how we just kind of get her in and have a big open conversation so that the industry can come together about this concept as well, because it really is one of those things that it governs so much of our lives. Decisions get made based on data, whether that's the ABS, your algorithms and social media, funding applicate, whatever it is, decisions get made based on data. So how do we make sure that the way data is captured is equitable, representative and just, so that the decisions that get made based on that data are the same? I hope that makes a little bit of sense. Let's, let's do heaps more exploring about it because I think um, particularly given the online hybrid digital nature of the work and kind of where we're going, we really need to um, we really need to get up to speed and I, I think Australia Council can help to make that happen. Yeah, sounds great. Thanks, Jane. I know that um, culture counselling in WA that the Department of Local Government, Sports and Culture have done, we do collect data, but it is qualitative data about how that artwork has made you feel or feel connected or whether it's important these stories are being told here, so I think it's still data. Um, yeah, and the question is, who's reading and analysing that data? So if you, if a, if, a, if a group of First Nations people have responded to that question, and a white lens is taken to those responses, that is not data justice, mm. as an example. So it's really about the lived experience. And we have this conversation in relation to, say, reviewing. You know, First Nations artists and people of colour absolutely should have their work reviewed by people with lived experience and people who they choose. When is it appropriate for a white reviewing lens to review a First Nations work and decide if that is um, impactful, successful, high production, whatever it is? So it's a similar analogy in the sense that it's the lens of who's, who kicks it off and who finalises it. Any other questions? Hi, I just wanted to piggyback off that. Um, I was thinking about this a lot. Um, for the data justice, I guess, will we even actually be accepted in that data? Because I was thinking about this, like we might be, diverse people might be a minority in each of our, um, I guess our communities, but um, if you put us together, we can also be a majority. Um, and at the same time, we're always gonna be doing things no matter what happens, because that's just the way the world goes. But I think to add to that, will we, when you're ready to inc include 
that space, will we, how will we, and will be accepted? So my question is, for, for example, as an art organisation, what is included as an art form? And what does that look like when it is accepted for people who are coming into those spaces, I guess? change data, like when we change data, for example, or data justice, or just wanted to piggyback off that, um, when we, when as the, <laughs> as a cult space, or if we obviously want to get rid of that, when you're ready to accept the people who want to come into the spaces, I guess, or I guess when the system wants to accept us in that data, what does that look like for the, for example, specifically for the arts industry, maybe, like what is accepted as art? So, for example, myself, I come from a community of people who may not be accepted into the, like as in a black space, for example, um, who come from a music industry, or like, is that something that will be accepted into this art space, and how, what does that look like? I guess that's kind of where I'm, I'm getting at. Um, what is accepted into a the data, yeah, a performing art space or the data analyzing, and will it be something that will be will there be room for it? I don't know if I'm Jade. Thinking. I think I'm oh, sorry, not Jade. So hard. You, you've been doing a lot of different kind of um, performing arts community interaction and engagement through different kind of areas of your building space. Do you want to talk a little bit about how? You, how you've been engaging different audiences? Yeah, um, I think uh, I just to to link it back to the to the data and the better reporting and um, the justification of funding and the valuing of art um, as an organisation. It's interesting. Australia Council's actually changed the way that uh, we report back as a funded org. Um, and I was able to curate my own uh, areas of choice for me to report against um, for you know this next section of time. So it's easy. So I can then craft my own narrative. Mm. Um, and for me, what's really interesting, I'll give an example of what I see as success or valuing um, that I'm not quite sure if the current model of data collection or acquittals would enable me to tell this very. Uh, narrative-based success story for a while. So we uh, um, we have quite an intimidating, ugly building that's part of a university <laughs> campus. But what's incredible is that out the front we have a forecourt area. And so during COVID, as we were leaning into going, how the hell do you queue 400 people? Oh my God, they're all going to be like they're going to take up the entire forecourt area. Um, 
but also how do we activate this space, how do we use storytelling in a different way. We engage Black Flash Creative, which are a 100% owned First Nations artist agency, and we approach them, they already do a heap of public art and work in the visual art space, and we're like, look, how would you feel about partnering with us um, and curating a suite of free public programs, including um, re-exhibiting First Nations um, work, uh, public free events, uh, entertainment, whatever, but dedicating a huge portion of funding towards a free public program that was led by this First Nations collective. Um, yeah, great, and that's what we've been doing out there all year, and through that as well, we obviously have our First Nations main stage program that has a $45 ticket attached, and then through our highway, we've also been doing $12.50 shows and experiences ticketed work. And what happened quite recently, which I makes me feel like, and I was telling Rachel about this, we were, it's working, is we have each time the exhibition turns over three times a year and we have a free public party that we've been calling a block party that they curate, um, we put on food and drink and whatever. And it's become a really wonderful community event and all the TOs come and it's really diverse and it's rad, it's really great. So we had a party and um, as part of the visual art exhibition opening. And then the following night we did um, Steph Dusdale, who's a First Nations comedian. Uh, she runs Blackout Comedy, which was a First Nations uh, comedy night. So all of the artists on the bill were First Nations. Um, $12.50 uh, in the theatre. And free event. Then the next night I came back in to see the comedy and it was basically it was, there was about 120 people in there and only 10 of us were non-Indigenous. Like it was full of people and community that had bought a ticket, that were really happy to be here. Um, and we just also finished our black, our bigger and blacker season. And I guess what I'm, I'm trying to say is like that audience dynamic and pathway and um, what I was talking earlier about, how do you create authentic engagement that's not just once every two years we mm. put on a First Nations play where there's purposeful like reasons to be there and they feel, you know, communities want to come along and they know that there's something on and it's a, there's a deep commitment to ensuring that we're supporting artists. Three or four of the comedians were like, I have never performed to a room full of black fellas. This is amazing. Half of the jokes didn't land in the same way that it would have because they were... So I guess what I'm saying is in keeping with how do we create spaces, how do we uh, articulate successes that don't necessarily, um, you know, fit the criteria that we currently have to fit. How do we tell a story and that um, qualitative data becomes more valuable than the quantitative, how many people, what are the numbers, what's box office success. And for us, also redefining as an organisation what success looks like. Yeah, absolutely box office, but also a number of partnerships, the level of community engagement that we do. We've now redefined what success looks like. Um, so we can really lean into the wins and feel like we can see progression um, and we're not in a vacuum. Mm. I don't know if I answered that question, but that's an example. That's what I was thinking of. I think my question was odd anyway, so you've answered it. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> <Anyway>. I spoke. <laughs> it does speak to data though, because that, that really is like a huge turnaround of what you've just done on multiple layers, but that's quite hard to, to, to put forward in a data collection analysis of, of the, the, the change that you've made there. 
Any other questions? Hi, I'm Adelina. Um, I'm an artist choreographer uh, based in uh, Woodwich Up Market River, and I am a lecturer at WAPA, which is the West Australian Academy of Performing Arts. So my, um, I'm Mexican and Swedish. Um, I've lived in Australia for 13 years. Just background context. Um, my interest sits as an artist, as a curator, as someone who works in, in institutions. And I'm sitting next to my students here, and we're both very passionate about uh, what's happening at our institution, at WAPA. And so my question to you is, what do you think of, um, or what would you like to see in terms of intergenerational change? Um, so, I work with young people and in institutions and as an artist, so there is this um, trajectory, if you want, or not a trajectory for someone um, that is not having those pathways uh, carved out for you as a young person. Um, so, you know, this comes into outreach and it comes into mentorship and inclusion and um, accessing areas that are not, yeah, like I said, already created, that path is already created. Um, so in our institution, um, to uh, throw some shit at the work that I do, <laughs> or where I work, um, is that it's very Eurocentric um, in terms of theory and practice and the history that is taught, um, and I guess in general conduct, you know. It's just um, more white than not, and it's trying, you know, I'm part of all the working groups and my students are also part of those uh, working groups in terms of having those conversations and how we implement, you know, how do we actually uh, do the practice and how do we create this safe space. So we're all trying to do it in a very, you know, bureaucratic sort of hardwired institution. So I, it's such, so refreshing to sit here. Um, here and you working in the industry in different um, capacities, but um, yeah, I'd like to hear your voices in terms of the, the place that we are sitting in, in an institution. What's your ideas? What would you um, like to recommend or throw at us or provocations? Or And I will bring that back to um, the, the working groups. So I'm taking the opportunity here to talk to the sector, you know, which we are supposedly you know, training our young people to get out there and be in the sector. Um, Samira, do you want to have, would you like, would you sorry, like, that's a long question. Would you like to speak about how, how some potential ways to, to help shift a huge <laughs> European-centric institution? <laughs> no pressure. Yeah, that's a very easy, <laughs> yeah, very easy question. Um, I want to simplify my answer to one aspect. So I think I mentioned earlier, when I started with the city of Melbourne, I started at Signal, which is a creative space for young people. So that is uh, young artists 13 to 26. I worked on two projects. One was around um, developing creative opportunities for young women uh, alongside Victoria Health. That was to address gender violence and discrimination. 
But the second one that I walked in was called Curator's Lab, which is a monthly club for any young person, not just in the city, but anywhere, to come in and to talk about art um, and to work on projects together. I did that together with another friend of mine, uh, Asia Tupa, who is, like me, of East African background. The, the, I guess the advantage that I have is, one, I am from a particular community. I've been doing this for a while, so when I get asked to to do a project where that it is around diversifying representation, etc. I kind of have a network or a, I guess, contact book for people, right? So the first thing I did there was, at the beginning it was probably 30% young whites, no, 30% people of color, 70% white young people that came. And then it was just, this is just one simple, like one strategy. You have to, invite as many people as you can, using as many approaches as you can, and when you fail, you should not assume that the failure is because of that community. If four people show up, that's, that's good. Those four people having a great time become eight. Those eight become 20. Some of those people will want to become arts leaders. Some of them want to become artists. Some of them want to become curators. They will then want to stick with you. You have to diversify, you have to stick at it, and you have to hire people that look like them, right? And I think the advantage of that project was there were you know, two East African um, women, me in my 30s and Asia in her 20s, that were also artists, that were also curators, that were also producers. You can't expect audiences or young people who are from backgrounds to come into an institution if nobody at the institution looks like them, and not just the admin or the front of house staff, right? I'm not like across it. Then the other one, I'm going to end my answer because I want Jade and Zoha to also have a response. Give them opportunities that are actually meaningful, right? So when I came into that role, I think they had one particular opportunity every year, which was with um, a public park nearby, but I immediately used my networks and contacts, you know, we ended up doing a really great project with the National Gallery of Victoria, where I linked up the young curators, as we call them, with a school in the city of Melbourne where 100% of the women are of refugee asylum seekers backgrounds who felt very isolated in the city. So what we did is, instead of me and Asia telling young people what to do, we said to them, how would you collaborate with people from a different background not necessarily have as many artistic opportunities as you. What would you do in the National Gallery of Victoria? And they came up with this really great project where they they acted as um, uh, internal curators at the NGV and they showed young women an exhibition that was happening at the time from, sorry, I forget the name, that Sydney Gallery that has all the Asian arts. So they ran through it. They did a workshop together, they talked to each other, they made meaningful connections. The assumption for that people here would be the immigrant, the refugee, the most out of it. It's actually the Australian-born uh, people of color and white Australian young people that said, oh, this has really changed my approach of how I engage with other people. And I'm speaking, these are 21-year-old, 19-year-old, 18-year-old saying these things, right? They were like, never had considered that I could use art to engage with other people that don't necessarily look like me. So this is a very small example 
where one, diversify the networks, diversify your contacts, as many approaches to who you invite in, and two, make things meaningful for the people that you are trying to find meaning for. Uh, do you have anything? Um, I hope that answered it. What, do you have anything to add to that, Jay, in terms of it's an institution that has actually probably the majority of its actual curriculum is Eurocentric? So that's a pretty massive question. Um, I think it actually comes down to relevance. And any institution that is not interested in making itself, in future proofing itself, in relation to relevance, can expect to decline rapidly in the next 10 years. So, you know, there are countless young people that I've spoken to even, who, if you ask them which institution they want to go, they want to become an actor, they want to become a, a practitioner, and you say, what's the pathway to that? They're actively rejecting these institutions because they're not culturally safe enough, they are too Eurocentric, and they are not relevant. So it's the same message for organisations. If, if there's a lack of interest in ensuring relevance, which relevance is about who are you talking to, what are you saying, staff and people working in that organisation reflective of the communities that they want to see there, who are the audiences and the artists, it's actually a bit of a survival imperative. And I think that's the thing that surprises me all the time, is people think it's a choice. And it's actually, you know, if we look at the private sector, PricewaterhouseCoopers, Deloitte, Ernest & Young, all of that crew, they've been working in more kind of um, progressive self-determined spaces in the last decade than this industry has. Why? Not because it's the right thing to do, but because it's financially sound, because it's a smart business decision. So truly, I think it's about relevance. It is about leadership. It does take a huge amount of commitment and um, investment in change. But you also, I think it's really important to understand what your own sphere of influence is and take it as far as you possibly can. And it's generally bigger than you think. So if it's about going and talking to the dean, if it's about trying to set up a conversation that really speaks to a whole range of emerging artists and producers who are the future clients, if you like, of that institution, and asking them what it means to be part of that institution and then working through what those changes mean, uh, it has to happen at every level. But I truly think it's about relevance. It's like organisations who will not shift their minds to ensuring audiences are reflective of the place they are or intergenerational. If you have an entire, an entire theatre full of old white people, there will come a time when there's no one in those seats. So it's a succession piece as well, but it's really about vitality and relevance to me. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Is there what did you want? Were you going to ask a question, Laura? No. I was just going to say, unless someone has a any question, um, I think everyone's quite tired. <laughs> uh, so I think maybe we should finish.
Um, I really enjoyed that conversation. It was hard to know whether you guys were because I was just staring at the screen, which was slightly weird. Um, but I just do want to thank you three so much. I know it's 6 o'clock or 5.30 over there. Uh, Jade, Zoha and Samira. It was a really fantastic conversation and um, thank you so much for giving out your time and your brains. Thank you.